Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. There are some out there who are waiting for Jay Powell to take the podium on Wednesday at the Economic Forum uh, in New York and say, you know what, guys, we're going to take a little pause. We've seen the stock sell off and we're going to make sure that we don't go too quickly. Our next guest says not so fast. John Author is a senior editor for Bloomberg Markets. We are so lucky that he joins us here in our inter- interactive brokers studios in New York. John, uh, mm. you think that this is an implausible scenario. Is that right? The, 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 the Fed would, would call off change its course just because of a sell-off in the stock markets, just to the extent we've had so far. Or frankly, if it fell another 10, 15% from here, yes, I find very implausible. They've learned the lesson from the last two cycles. The Fed got it wrong by being too easy and allowing very big bubbles to inflate that hurt when they burst. Uh, tech stocks the first time and then credit the second. Uh, they will at least make a different mistake this time. Uh, you know, at least very optimistic. Love mistake. it. They're not going to make the same mistake. At least. Yeah. What is your reaction mm. to investment professionals who mm. blame the Federal Reserve either because they don't raise interest rates enough or because they? Uh, have raised them too much already Hmm. when they use the federal reserve as a whipping post for why the market behaves in a certain way i find it a little rich personally i mean certainly we all of us that's a nice way of saying yes exactly all i'm trying to be nice but, but those of us around this table we we all make a living commenting on markets, which means that we spend a lot of time commenting on the Fed because the Fed is an incredibly important player. All of that is evident. Generally speaking, however, the Fed is not just um, an actor, but it's also a passive recipient of conditions. It does have to respond. And uh, while it's, I think it's fair to say, the single most powerful actor in markets, it's not omnipotent by any leap of the imagination. At the moment, it, if you really think that the Fed is already over-tightening, that is, I think, ridiculous, given the, historically how low interest rates still are. Uh, and while I don't want to comment on any particular politicians who might be taking any particular positions, to say that the Fed should be hiking less than it is, when we can all agree that it's still being very accommodative, means that you're saying the economy is a lot weaker than certain politicians might be claiming. There is there is no way out of that. Either the Fed is doing the right thing, or if it's going too far, that's because the economy is in real trouble if it can't stand interest rates of 2%. So I, I do have serious problems with uh, people who say that the uh, that the Fed is already going too far and that, that it's the, the sig- significant problem we have. 
All right. Well, just uh, looking uh, to one aspect of the tightening, the balance sheet reduction Mm. that gets less attention than the rate hikes, but perhaps shouldn't. And there's still a big question, which is at what point will the Fed say, all right, enough. We've done enough rolling off here and we're going to keep our balance sheet at what? Two trillion, three trillion. I mean, we don't really have a number, right? I mean, we're going to get guidance on that this week. Yes, but I I would... I suspect this could be where we get quite an ugly surprise. If you look through the volumes of Fed speak that are out there, and Fed governors, as they should, are fairly transparent, at least in thinking out loud, there is almost no thinking out loud about the balance sheet, just none. The implicit uh, implicit uh, ex- uh, conclusion you can draw from their public pronouncements is that on the balance sheet reduction, they are on autopilot. It is the uh, idea is the balance sheet is going to very steadily reduce month over month. You don't hear you hear plenty of risks, uh, potential risks on the horizon, being listed by Powell and the other governors. Resource, uh, sorry, resource reserve reserve scarcity is not among them. You hear plenty of people complaining about already about a shortage of dollars in the market. You do not hear that reflected by FedSpeak. And just real quick here to give a sense of the balance sheet. Mm. The balance sheet has been reduced uh, from $4.5 trillion at its peak in January 2015 down to uh, $4.1 trillion. Mm. So we have seen a bit of a roll-off, but there's still a lot more to go if they want to, right? I mean, this has been, uh, you know, yes, a decline, but... Uh, it's hmm. completely realistic to think that they will keep doing this for more than another year. And the balance sheet would still be utterly enormous in historic terms, but the change at the margin, which is all important, I suspect is much more what people should be worrying about than exactly how many more changes we get in the target Fed funds rate. Uh, This may sound bizarre, but is there any value in noting the difference between 2008 and 2018 when it comes to the accessibility of social media apps and the ability to report crises when the 2008 crisis was mm. broadcast mainly via television and traditional yes. media. Do you think that it means something different now? Very much so. I mean, my farewell piece when I was still at the Financial Times, my farewell piece was uh, uh, about how... Yes, uh, I remember it. Yeah, I, 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 it's, it's blazoned into my mind that, that, that uh, I, I, went, I went to my city branch on, on possibly the worst day of the crisis and found there were dozens of very well-dressed Wall Streeters uh, evidently shifting money around to make sure they still had uh, uh, insured accounts. And we wrote a very, very, very negative story that day, but I didn't actually do what I might conceivably do now, and which somebody definitely would do, which is just take a photo of a bunch of panicking Wall Streeters in their suits trying to get their money out of a bank. Such a photo now on on uh, social media could have could have been the spark that uh, lit an even worse flame. Uh, so yes, I th- I think that's a very worrying scenario. I don't think it has a particularly big effect, bar you know the president's folk call diplomacy over over Twitter, which which the Fed seems to be ignoring so far. But so far, I don't think it makes a a, a great difference. But if things get as nerve wracking as they did in two thousand and eight, it could be critical. Just real quick here, is your sense that if the Fed were to indicate that they are uh, ready to slow down a little bit or that they're showing more concern, do you think that that will uh, correspond with a substantial pop in U.S. stocks? 
<laughs> quite. Uh, no, I, I suspect not. I mean, in the, in the very short term, if your operative word is substantial, no. Uh, if, if, we get a, if we get unusually dovish Fed speak at some point in the next week, then yes, you'll get a, a pop on that day. But ultimately, I've got enough trust in the Fed that the only reason, I believe the only reason they'd be doing that is because the underlying data, particularly from China, will be worrying. Thank and you. therefore, that will cancel out the effects of the, uh, the extra dovishness from the Fed. Thank you very much for spending time with us, as always. John Authors is a senior editor for Bloomberg Markets, talking about the Federal Reserve, potential rate increases, and what they might do to the U.S. economy. Facebook, the shares of Facebook, they are higher right now by about $3.5, $135 a share for Facebook. Joining us is David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist for Laidlaw & Company. And you can follow David on Twitter at GVA Research. David Garrity, speak to the issues that surround corporate governance at Facebook. This is coming at a time when report is that Britain's parliament has actually seized some confidential Facebook documents from the developer of what is described as a now defunct bikini photo searching app. And this has to do with data protection policies. What does this have to do with Facebook's corporate governance? In terms of looking at Facebook's corporate governance, I mean, it was pretty much very clearly set forth in the prospectus when the company went public back in 2012 that Mark Zuckerberg would have, because of many class, dual classes of stock, that he would have super voting rights. And then the company since then had introduced another class of stock that had no votes at all. So effectively, Zuckerberg, for owning about a 5% economic interest in the company, has you know majority voting control. He also has the right to be the sole person to select who his successor as CEO will be. So from that standpoint, Zuckerberg's hold on corporate governance at Facebook is effectively a hammerlock. It's impregnable. There's no way that you're going to get rid of Mark Zuckerberg anytime soon, unless he chooses to step down for some reason. Um, obviously, there's a question here, does this pierce the corporate veil when it comes to looking at some of the liabilities that Facebook may face? But going specifically to the case that you mentioned that was being examined by Parliament and the invasion of privacy rights, it ties into the committee in Parliament that is investigating what Facebook had done in terms of providing user information to Cambridge Analytica for the purposes of interference or campaigning around or targeting ad advertising around not only uh, the Brexit campaign, but also the 2016 elections. And so from that standpoint, if we look in the context of Europe that's been introducing new privacy regulations, this is separate and distinct and is very much focused on bad actors such as Cambridge Analytica. Okay, but when you talk about regulators kind of stepping in or lawmakers investigating Facebook and its role in some recent uh, elections, I just have to wonder what could come out of that? How much does this sort of threaten Facebook's existence in its current form? And how much is this already priced in with Facebook shares down more than 23% this year? True. No, I mean, you, you certainly have seen the stock come off, you know, what, it was about $220 a share back in um, 
July and then has since sort of come in to a level about 140, so it's lost about a third. Um, and yeah, Barron's over the weekend had come out with a favorable article saying here's a company going to double sales, but it's cheaper than Walmart. Um, the issue here is is that you know Walmart's business model isn't under regulatory scrutiny. Um, you have a situation with Facebook where you know the company, arguably given how important it's become for people getting news, you know, if something barks like a dog or walks like a duck, you know, it's a duck or it's a dog. In Facebook's case, we could say it's actually a media company. They distribute news. And from this standpoint, they're a media company that's trying to say that they're not. And in the event that the government were to decide to say, look, you're a media company, despite whatever your protestations otherwise might be, we're going to start regulating you like a media company. This changes the dynamic for Facebook in terms of their internal costs and in terms of what they may and may not be allowed to do. Because this also, that would mean libel laws would apply to Facebook. Precisely. And possibly, you know, there may be scrutiny here given the governance structure. You know, what is management's responsibility here? You know, does it, does the corporate veil actually apply? So uh, just expanding out, I mean, we did get the news today that Supreme Court justices appear poised to allow an antitrust lawsuit to go through. It accuses Apple of using its market dominance to artificially inflate prices at its app store. Apple shares have been falling uh, steadily for the past few weeks. And I'm just wondering, I mean, do you view this sort of existential threat to the business model to be similar at other big tech companies just by virtue of their size and the fact that regulators are kind of getting more concerned about that? I don't know if I'd necessarily want to go out. I mean, looking at Facebook's problem, Facebook's problem is a problem of social media and, and the abuse of social media and how a regulator is going to exercise appropriate and proper oversight in terms of social media companies. As we look to other technology companies, whether it's an Apple, whether it's a Google, whether it's Microsoft, whether it's a Netflix or an Amazon, um, you know, certainly we have to look at companies that have grown to a fairly substantial size, wield substantial economic influence, um, and as a result, you know, are they introducing anti-competitive behaviors? There has been the case being made quietly but steadily over the past six to 12 months that the next administration ought to be coming back in and looking at trust busting. We ought to be going back and looking at what happened in earlier economic cycles back in the early 20th century. You know, Teddy Roosevelt came in basically as a trust buster. Have these companies gotten to be too large? And it's interesting here with this news with respect to Apple is that this is something that's actually rising to review by the Supreme Court. David Garrity, the one name we haven't yet to mention is Sheryl Sandberg. Sheryl Sandberg is responsible, I believe, for the direct scrutiny of advertising as well as legal and policy issues at Facebook. Who gets thrown under the bus, if anyone, because of the perilous situation that the company faces right now? Well, one certainly has to argue that Sandberg is going to be sort of squarely in the crosshairs. And, but I will give Sandberg credit is that when it has come time for this company's management to appear before various government bodies, regulatory bodies, to testify, 
it has generally been Sandberg who's been the stand-up person out of management to be held accountable. Zuckerberg has tried to stay in the shadows, has tried to Dutch dodge, duck, bob, weave. But it's been Sandberg who really has been the stand-up person here. And unfortunately, given the way things are set up in terms of the governance we discussed earlier, it's most likely going to be Sandberg who takes the first fall. David Garrity, it's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much uh, for coming in. David Garrity is Chief Market Strategist at Laidlaw & Company in New York, joining us here in our 1130 studios. General Motors shares are surging after they announced that it will cut more than 10,000 salaried staff and factory workers, closing five factories. And this comes after surprisingly good results. Uh, David Welch joining us now, Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg. He is at GM headquarters. David, why are they doing this and uh, why is it being so well received by shareholders? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One, they see the market moving toward electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, and they're still hiring people in those areas. But as they cut passenger car models that aren't selling, and as they, they try to develop the cars of tomorrow, they just don't need as many assemblers and traditional mechanical engineers. Um, you know, electric cars have fewer parts. They're easier to engineer. They're easier to build. Uh, they see a future there. People are buying more SUVs and fewer passenger cars, so they're getting rid of some of those nameplates like the Chevy Cruze Compact. They're getting rid of the Impala sedan. You don't need passenger car engineers to do that. Um, And, you know, I think they're not really admitting this part, but I think they see the global auto market softening. China is in a downturn this year. The U.S. is definitely coming off its 2016 peak. Uh, It's not going to crater, but... When things are getting softer and you don't need as many people to engineer this myriad of nameplates that they've had for a long time, you can make a lot of cuts. The other thing is Mary Barr is under a lot of pressure because the stock price hasn't been doing great. Add it all together and she's got to show some money. David Welch, could you just uh, continue on the theme of electric and hybrid vehicles and the number of workers that it takes to build them compared to what it takes to build a fossil fuel powered automobile or vehicle yeah i don't have any numbers for you on that but imagine this Uh, one of the reasons electric cars are so expensive is just because that one big hunk of battery costs so much but that's coming down uh so so the cost is getting more competitive what that will replace and, and i've seen tesla's torn down i've seen a chevy bolt torn down you have this giant battery and you have one electric motor that replaces an internal combustion engine a transmission a whole exhaust system, a whole fuel intake and management system, a bunch of pumps. Um, you, you take all of those parts and you toss them, and you got these two big pieces that, you know, that, that battery is basically the floor of a car. You kind of bolt it in and connect everything. I mean, it's, it's, look, it's not that simple. Tim, you and I couldn't do it. But it's a lot less complex than that whole suite of internal combustion parts I, I just rattled off. So David though I have to wonder whether that is going to be an excuse for the other point that you mentioned which is that GM probably sees the global auto market slowing substantially and they want to make sure that they're the correct size to meet uh, waning demand because honestly we haven't seen electric car sales pick up that much and frankly cars uh, and and trucks gas guzzling trucks have continued to be the most popular right Right. so i mean is that basically a a red herring for the real issue which is the, the the slowdown It's not a red herring in the sense that they are hiring software-related people to do autonomous cars 
and the power electronics and battery engineering you need for EVs. But they're absolutely using the cover of that in order to really just get leaner, number one, uh, and, and number two, prepare for what is, I think is going to be a slowdown in the U.S. And some other forecasters uh, are, are making that point that they could, we could go from selling 17 million vehicles in the U.S. this year to, you know, maybe 15 and a half or 16 in the next couple of years. Um, you know, there's a forecast out there like that, and it's from someone who's not crazy. So, yeah, I think they see things softening up a bit, and they're uh, they're allocating more in China as well. You know, the part that they're not talking about here is a lot of the vehicles they're killing in the U.S. are still going to be sold in China, and they're probably going to engineer them over there in the future, so they're probably hiring engineers there as well. So it's kind of all of these factors, and, you know, they, they, they put probably the, the best and most futuristic spin on it. But, yeah, they, they, they want to get leaner, and they, uh, they see the market softening. David Welch, just give you a couple of seconds here. Do you think that the same issues face the large German automobile makers, and they have big labor unions to deal with? Yeah, it, 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 it's going to affect everyone. And, and, and to be honest with you, I, I think the U.S. market is probably a healthier market than Europe is, uh, even though they sell luxury cars over there. Uh, that's always been a tougher market than the U.S. because here you got pickup trucks and big SUVs that hide a lot of problems and make a lot of money to help you deal with your other problems. Uh, they've got luxury cars over there, but that, that's just a tougher place to do business than the U.S. So absolutely. Thanks very much for being with us. David Welch, our Detroit Bureau Chief for Bloomberg, talking about GM and its announcement that it will cut about 15% of its workforce and shutter five manufacturing plants in 2019. Fernando Camera is the co-founder and the chief executive of Sky Hour, and he's here to tell us how you can actually book and give flights and travel to someone else hint, using hint hint hint, hint. yeah right using uh, his, the website that he has uh, co-created uh, uh, called skyhour.com thanks very much for being here thank you how for- does sky hour work thank you for having me guys so at sky hour what we do is we sell flight hours for 60 dollars an hour and you can use those hours to book any flight on the biggest 400 airlines in the world so it all started when i was trying to give a flight to one of my best friends and and i couldn't find a way to do that uh, so first i was trying to book a flight i had to know the personal details destination dates i was getting the surprise airlines didn't allow me to book a flight for her because of security reasons then i tried airline miles but if i give you miles of jet you cannot travel on Delta. There's a lot of like outdates and restrictions. And so it's almost impossible to use them. And it's exact, exactly the same thing with airline gift cards. A gift card of JetBlue doesn't work on Delta. It's almost impossible to use, uh, to use them. So there wasn't like an easy, smart, and inspiring way to give someone a flight as a gift. And so at Sky Hour, you can buy as many hours as you want for $60. And you can use those hours to book any flight on the biggest 400 airlines in less than a minute. To me, it seems like a cheap price, $60 an hour, especially when you think about peak travel times uh, to, say, Florida or places uh, that are popular destinations in the United States during those times. Is it? I mean, how did you get the airlines on board here? 
So, you know, people don't know, but more than 95% of all the flights in the world, they cost less than $6 an hour. And so there's only around 5%, which is the super last minute flights on busy routes. And we have a very fair model because when you book a flight on SkyHour, we always give you rewards back. So we always give you hours back that you can use to book your next flight. And so if you do the math and, and you see that we are never more expensive, we have a very fair uh, model. In looking at just a sort of sample trip, an itinerary yeah. from New York to London, yeah. uh, it came back and it told me that I needed 14, I needed 14 hours, yeah. right? Because that's a round trip yeah. experience. So I, that would be 14 hours, 14 times 60. Exactly. So, you know, probably flights from New York to London is 6 hours and 30 minutes and the return flight is 8 hours and 10 minutes. So the total is uh, 14 hours and 14 minutes. So okay. So how does that actually work? In other words, if someone goes to your site, signs yeah. up, buys those 14 hours, yeah. gifts them to someone else, how does the airline... Uh, manage their inventory so we do it everything happens on SkyHour so you go to SkyHour.com and can buy hours for yourself and then you can use those hours to book any flight on any airline or you can give those hours to your friends and so you know if it's your birthday tomorrow I give you 10 hours and you can use those 10 hours to go anywhere anytime and uh, if the flight duration if the booking the total booking cost is 14 hours and you only have 10 you can buy uh, another 4 hours on the checkout and we also allow you to crowdfund the flights. So if you're a student or you're for a charity, you need to book a flight, you don't have money, you can ask your friends and send me for hours and they can give you hours in less than 30 seconds, even if they are not members of SCAR. So what's the incentive for the airlines to work with you? Because yeah. uh, I assume that you capture some differential to keep your operations going, yeah. right? I mean, they could just get more if they went directly. Yeah. So airlines, they, they, they love SkyHour because they believe that we can essentially be the most important distribution channel for them in a couple of years from now because of the gifting industry. So I will give you an example. Right now in U.S., Americans, they're spending $140 billion per year on gift cards and less than 1% is spent on air travel because, you know, before SkyHour, there wasn't a way to give a flight to someone. And our generations, we want to spend all our money on experiences. That's what we want to do. And the most exciting trips are the ones far away, the ones that normally start and end with a flight. So, you know, by allowing people to give SkyHour to each other, we're going to essentially, you know, bring a big percentage of those 140 billion that people spend gift cards to their line industry. So they see us as, you know, a new distribution channel, bringing more money to the industry. Now, does this include any of the extra fees? That yeah, everything is included. Everything. Everything so is included. you can take your bags and... Everything is included, yeah. So, one thing I'm wondering is, does it remove pricing power from the airlines? Uh, we, no, it's not, not exactly, because essentially we sell hours for $60 an hour, but, you know, most of the times, uh, actually, phrase cheap, the fare of the flight is cheaper than $60, so we give you the difference back in minutes. So, airline, no one loses money, everyone makes money. No, I, I'm saying that, you know, especially uh, just in general, I've seen Delta raise their prices and yeah. uh, American. I mean, people have basically been saying, airlines have been saying, we need to, we need to charge more because of the contracts mm -hmm. with pilots, et cetera. I mean, does it sort of remove their ability to do that because it's sort of capping uh, things at $60 an hour. No, we are not doing that. Actually, right. we are, you know, airlines, they, they you know, we, we make airlines super happy, you know. We are bringing okay. more money to the industry <laughs> and we respect their business models and we support them 100%. We need them to operate. Do you travel a lot? All the time. Yeah, you what's know? your favorite destination? 
Oh, that's a very tough question. You know, I um, favorite de destination. I love skiing. Probably, you know, Whistler. I love it. All I right. always go there for ski. Well, have a great time. It's uh, getting to that season. Uh, Fernando Camara is co-founder and chief executive of Sky Hour in New York and Lisbon. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.